Well, good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was a beautiful drive over this morning. Um, we moved from Blacksburg, Virginia, just a little less than a month ago uh, to Fort Worth. And um, we're missing the mountains a little bit, but uh, it's beautiful out here. And um, they told me it was going to be hot, but um, they were not honest enough. It's hotter than I, than I thought, but that's okay. Uh, we have a yellow lab. His name is Hank, and the kids were taking bets on whether he would struggle or I would struggle, and so far I am losing. Uh, it's harder for me than it is for, for even Hank, uh, but that's okay. Uh, we're glad to be here. Uh, my job uh, is a little bit of a different one. I was the campus minister for RUF at Virginia Tech uh, in Blacksburg, Virginia for eight years and then have moved into this um, denominational role uh, to oversee and coach and pastor campus ministers and their families, our staff and our interns. And so uh, it's a real privilege to get to know these guys. Uh, there are 13 campuses that I oversee um, in, in Texas, and uh, they are doing some amazing ministry. Some of them small, new fledgling campus ministries, building a community of students to really love and care for one another. Some of them are huge, uh, gigantic. I mean, it's just a machine, uh, and folks are hearing the gospel left and right, and it's so fun just to see God work through their personalities, uh, through their families, through their ministries on campus. And so, if you would pray for them, um, I, this title of the sermon this morning is New Year's Resolutions, because this really feels like the start of the new year for an RUF guy, and probably for a lot of you if you have kids in school, all of that. It is, um, it's, it's busy. Uh, we have a, a text thread with all the guys, and there are pizza parties, and there's uh, a glow-in-the-dark ultimate frisbee happening, and there's hikes and all sorts of float trips, all, all these things to try to meet and uh, get to know freshmen. And um, so just be in prayer for them. Uh, you can pray for me too. One of the things that I'm going to be trying to do this next year is start a new RUF at UT Arlington. And so that uh, was just voted on at our last Presbytery committee meeting uh, to try to get that off the ground. There's, uh, it's still in the sort of infancy stage. There's a lot of things that have to happen before uh, we hire someone to start June 1, 2020 at UT Arlington, but that's the hope that we would get another uh, RUF campus ministry started uh, at UT Arlington. It is a massive school. I actually didn't even know uh, how big it was, and it's twice as big as Virginia Tech and uh, there are a ton of students there. And um, anyway, so uh, if you could pray for me as I work with uh, churches and pastors and try to hire a campus minister to come and do that work, it's going to be really exciting if we can get that, get that going next year, maybe the year after, something like that. So just be in prayer for that. Again, Jake mentioned our family. Amy and I have four kids. Josiah's 12, uh, Cooper's 10, Sadie Jane, our daughter, she's eight, and Benji is six. And they all start in brand new schools tomorrow. And so uh, anxiety's high, at least for Amy and I, the anxiety's high. And um, it sounds silly, but if you would, just pray for them to have someone to eat lunch with. It really is uh, uh, the prayer that we've been praying for months as we've been thinking about the move and then actually making the move. We just want them to have some friends. And we've got a lot of church friends, but everybody's at different schools. So just be in prayer for them too. 
Um, as we get into the uh, sermon this morning, I picked uh, Psalm 19. Jake said y'all were going through the Psalms uh, this summer, and uh, C.S. Lewis has called this the greatest psalm in the Psalter and one of the greatest works of poetry in the world. Uh, now, I'm not a, a poet. Um, it's a beautiful poem. It's a beautiful song, and um, I want you to think of two things as we start. What would you want this year to be about? If it really is the start of a new year, right? Our priorities shift. We let things slide a little bit in the summer. Uh, we're, we have a little lo- slower schedule. The pace of life maybe slows down a little bit. As we start the new year, what do you want this next year to look like for you? What would your priorities be? What would it look like for you to grow if you think in terms of uh, your relationship with Jesus? Maybe you've walked with him for a long time. Maybe you're still trying to figure out Christianity and who Jesus is. What are your priorities? What would you want your life to be marked by this time next year? When you looked back to say, this is what I wanted my year to be about. This is where I grew. This is where I saw God work in my life. And I think it's this. Uh, For a long time, I've struggled with um, uh, my relationship with knowing the Bible, right? I grew up in a Christian home, uh, went to church, kind of got the Christian thing. You're supposed to be about the Bible. We would do the Bible reading plans. Maybe some of you have done those. Maybe you failed at those like I have. Um, And so it it seems like something we really care about for a little while, but it's hard to sustain. And even harder to sustain our our relationship with the Bible, our continued reading of it or devotional reading, learning about the Bible. It's even harder to delight in it, right? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And this this psalm is going to say that it's worth more than gold, that it's sweeter to us than honey. And I I guess I just want to admit that that's not always true. And there's an aspect to reading this psalm that's aspirational. One of the things that we want to pray as we look at it this morning is that God would make the things that David said so long ago true for us. Would that Scripture be so valuable to me that it would be worth an worth all my money, worth more than all my money, that it's enjoyment of it, that the joy that it brings me, would it be more than the best meal I've ever had or the best vacation I could possibly think of? And so as I read it, I just want you to think in those terms. What would it look like for us to be marked by people, marked as people who love the Word, and what would it look like for us to pray that this would be true? Okay, so let me read. This is God's Word, Psalm 19. He gives it to us because He's good and because He loves us. Let's stand. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. 
and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray as we begin. Lord God, thank you for your word that it is truth and life to us. I pray that by it and by your spirit, you would work in our hearts to make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us. That our hope and our confidence and our trust and our joy in you would grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm can really be divided into three sections, one, verses 1 through 6. The first section, we'll call that general revelation, right, to use the theological term. Uh, 7 through 11 would be special revelation. And then the last couple of verses are our response. And so let's look briefly. The premise here, David is telling us, is that God is constantly revealing himself to us that he has revealed himself in a general way and in a special way. The general way is in creation, in the beauties of all that he has made. He has displayed his glory. Psalm 7 talks about the beauty of, of mankind, right? The amazing complexity of our bodies, our, um, our, you know, our illness, fighting powers, right? The, just even the mechanics of getting our hands to do something as simple as picking up a book, Right? It's so complex that it points to a designer, a creator, who is glorious in all of his power, all of his might. And creation displays all of that. Think back to the most amazing, beautiful place you've ever been, right? Um, our old house in Blacksburg uh, was on the top of a mountain. The, the mountains, it's called a mountain, it's only 2,200 feet or so of elevation. So it's not gigantic, but it's, for Virginia, it's pretty big. And our, our house was up on the top of this ridge, and it overlooked this valley. And you could hike on either side of the valley. You could hike up and actually look back and, you know, you could see where our house is. You could actually see the water tower right behind our house. It was a little hard to see our house. But that spot for me was just a spot where it was gorgeous, it was beautiful, a peak weekend in October, right, when the leaves were changing. You could get on our front porch, and there was a chill in the air and a football game later that day, and it was just amazing. And it was glorious. It was beautiful, and it's meant to reflect God's glory. David says that creation is preaching. They are evangelists, right? Your sun rises out here 
your sunsets, beautiful, huge Texas sunsets, are meant to preach to us of the glory of the Creator. David talks about the sun here in verses 4 through 6. The sun is eager, right? He talks about a bridegroom waiting to leave his chamber, about to be married, right? One of the best parts of being an RUF campus minister is that you do a ton of weddings. At least we have. I've done like 20 weddings in the last five years, and it is so fun. I've done two this summer, and uh, the best, right, it's the best job right, in the wedding is being the bridegroom as you're waiting for your bride to come up the aisle. The second best job is the pastor, for sure, because I get to stand and see the bride as she's coming forward, and I get to see the bridegroom, right? I had one, my most recent wedding, right? Uh, he was just a puddle, just overcome. He's this tough guy and was just melted, right, with eagerness for her to come and for them to recite their vows and to be married. And David says that's the picture of the sun, that it's eager to get up and preach, proclaim the glory of God. Everything we know about nature reveals a creator, and it shows us in all sorts of ways that it's a little confusing, maybe, verses 2 and 3, uh, verse 4, talking about how there's speech, then there's no speech, then there's speech, right? And I think the easiest way to understand that is that there's a, a nonverbal communication, right? There's a way that the, uh, we can see God's power and glory. If you've been to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls and you felt this big in front of the immensity of what you're seeing, I can't tell you everything about who God is, but it can tell you that there is a creator and he is way bigger than me, right? So there's speech. Now, it can't tell us everything. It's general revelation. It tells us a few things about God's power, about his nature. Romans 1, Paul says, uh, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. David says the skies proclaim his handiwork. They proclaim his glory, and everyone can see it. Now, they can't know everything, right? If I were to try to tell Amy, my wife, who's in Fort Worth right now, how to get here, right, and I could only draw her pictures, right? And I draw, okay, we went over 17 bridges to get here, and so I just drew 17 bridges, right, or however many bridges it took to get here. What are the chances of her making it over the correct 17 bridges to actually make it here? Pretty, pretty poor, right? I mean, it, that's not about her driving. Please don't tell her I made any comments about her driving, but like the chances of it are pretty poor. It, what is the bridge, right? It doesn't say anything about directions, but it gives us some idea of what's happening, and that's what general revelation is like for us. God's glory is manifest, but to really know Him, you need His words. It needs to be revealed, right? Uh, one of the hardest things for our students at Virginia Tech, our freshmen particularly, as they move in, it's harder to be the second roommate into your dorm room, 
right? If you're the first roommate and you get everything set up on your side of the room, you kind of get to do what you want. And then the second roommate comes in and it's almost like you're moving into someone else's room already, right? And they, they see, okay, so this happens a lot. They see, okay, this guy's put up all of these posters, right? And he's put up all of these things and pictures and, you, you know, you could kind of look at it, but if he's not there, what would you really know about him, right? Would you know his hometown? Would you know his story or how he grew up? No, you wouldn't really know anything about him. If you could spend an hour looking through his dorm room without him there, you could learn some things, but if you could sit down with him, right, at the dining hall for an hour and have a conversation, you would learn so much more. As he spoke and revealed who he was and where he came from and what he loves and what he hates and what his aspirations are, you would learn so much more about him. And that's what we have in the second half of this psalm, God's special revelation. He is constantly revealing himself in creation, but he is specially revealing himself, who he is, his character, his nature in the scriptures, in the Bible, in his love letter to us, in these words that he's given us. If you look at verses 7 through 11, you see the character of the Bible, the character of the words. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That, the idea of perfect there It can speak to a couple things. You know in the Old Testament sacrificial system, a lamb would have to be sacrificed who was without blemish, who was without scar or wound or anything like that. It would have to be perfect, blameless. So that's one idea of the Scriptures, that they are perfect. It also speaks to a wholeness or a completion. Everything that we've been given by God in the Scriptures is useful to us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, and it helps prepare us for the works that God has for us. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so as we see this law of the, the law of the Lord is perfect, it's whole, it revives us. It gives life. That word revive is the same in Psalm 23, where the Lord restores my soul, right? When we're weary and we're exhausted, the Lord invigorates us. He brings life to us through His Word. General revelation, God's declaring His glory in in the skies and in the heavens, that's declaratory, but God's special word to us in the Bible, it transforms. It's transformative. It changes us. It brings life. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's reliable. It's trustworthy, and it makes wise the simple. When we don't know what to do, when we're young and trying to figure life out, the Bible comes and is a reliable guide to us, even in its warnings, right? The, the law often tells us what not to do, right? Um, our youngest is six. We're in a new house. We have a new stove, right? And I feel like we're reteaching our kids what to do with this new stove, right? We did it when they were little, right? You can't touch the hot stove, but we're having to redo it with all this new tech, right? The glass top thing is different than what we had before, and it's hard to tell. It stays hotter longer. We have to be really careful. We have to teach them, and so even in correcting them, we're correcting them for their good, right? Uh, Training wheels. We're also doing the bike thing now. Blacksburg was 
uh, so hilly. Uh, there was really only one spot that we could teach our kids how to ride their bike that's flat. And almost all of Texas is flat. <laughs> and so we've had a great time teaching them how to ride their bike. But those training wheels are, are warnings in some way, right? If, if, if Benji gets to lean in too far one side or the other, He's going to hurt himself. And so they, they form these barriers, these protective guardrails, in a sense, for him to help him know what to do. And God's word is that for us. There is delight and joy in God's word because we're living according to his plan for us. We aren't kicking against his instructions, but we're living in, a, in line with what he would have us do. And even those warnings are helpful for us. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're true. Their judgments are sound. And when we live according to His Word, we thrive. We can experience life to the full. Tim Keller has this great illustration about freedom, right? He talks about freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom is actually living according to the right restrictions. And he says that freedom for a fish, like a goldfish, isn't being able to live wherever they want. So if you took the fish out of the bowl and put him on the table, he's free in a sense, but is that a restriction that's, is that freedom going to kill him or going to help him thrive? It's going to kill that poor little fish by taking him out of the water. There are God-designed restrictions on the ways that we should live. And freedom, true freedom, is actually living in accordance with those restrictions. And so the Bible will say things like, don't commit murder. Because we are meant to be in community with one another, and our anger and our biting words and all of those things destroy, they don't build up. God's word will say things like, don't commit adultery, because the marriage bed and marriage vows are sacred, and so when that happens, it destroys and it doesn't build up. Those restrictions are good and for, meant for our joy, and we can rejoice in those. Verse 10 says, more, are they, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I want to just push in for one second here. If you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, you probably know what it feels like for the newness of a Bible to wear off, right? I keep my Bible in a box, and I get all sorts of grief from all of my students about keeping my Bible in a box, but there is something about that new Bible smell the way the pages feel, that I don't want to lose. Like, there is a, an attraction to that. That's weird, I know. Um, but that, there is something to that to me. There's something to finding a verse on a page and being able to read it, where if I find it for the thousandth time, it's some of the newness wears off, some of the impact wears off. I want you to think back. Do you remember being a new Christian? Maybe the gospel made sense to you in a new way for the first time, and you remember that excitement to read, to know God as he's revealed in the Bible, to see these stories of Jesus. And now you think, oh, I've read that before. 
There, there's a familiarity that breeds contempt, right? Uh, there is a familiarity that can um, discourage us. And I, I want to just push in and say what David is saying here is that as amazing as creation is, it is more amazing that the God of the universe has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And the fact that we have it and that we can read it in our own language and that we can own our own Bibles and that God has made a way for us to keep them even on our phones, (laughs) right, is amazing. And we, we lose some of the We lose some of the amazingness of that through our familiarity. And so I I would just ask you to pray that God would give you some of that again if you've been a Christian for a long time. If you're here and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, let me invite you into the hard work that is getting to know the Bible. God revealed himself in words, and it is worth the investigation. It is worth the difficulty of trying to understand what's going on in the story. Talk to Jake about resources to help you get in and and not lose that fire that you might have, the joy that you would have in knowing the Scriptures. The Scriptures are also important for this reason. They're, they're right, and they're true, and they revive the soul. They're transformative, but they also tell us about our Redeemer. Do you notice in verse 14 that, that David says at the very end this confession of faith, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. David sees that the, the creation and the law both reveal God the Redeemer. And I just want to encourage you, this is from a book from Sinclair Ferguson, that I think highlights, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's helpful for us to see that our Redeemer is revealed. Like the sun is a bridegroom in the sky waiting, Jesus himself is the bridegroom waiting to redeem his bride. This quote goes like this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, 
who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. And then he closes, the the Bible's really not about you, it's about him. We are able to respond in the way that David responds to God's revelation in his word. We're able to say, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we can see and know Jesus as he's revealed to us in his word. Lastly, as we close, we can know and be known by the word. Some of us want to keep the Bible at arm's distance. We want to read about it. We want to know sort of all sorts of things about it, but we don't want to be known by it. And it is true that the Bible, as you read it, will read you. And as it reads you, it's going to see your sin and your weakness and your brokenness and your need for a Savior. And, and what David is praying here in verses 11, or 12 through 13 is that he would be known by it. That the Bible, that the Word would point out his weakness and his sin and it would help him trust in Jesus. That it would help him trust in his Redeemer. And so as you think about what marks your year, what, what's this school year going to be like for you? Would we all be people who want the joy of knowing the Bible? Would we be people who put a priority on knowing God as he's revealed in his word above everything else? And would we let it read us? Would we be willing to be known by it? (laughs) That as it opens our hearts and displays our motives and shows us our weakness and our sin, would we be people who run back to the God who's revealed in the word? Would we be people who, who know that there is salvation in no other name than Jesus? And would we trust him? And would we get to know him better? You can't exhaust the knowledge in the Bible. So, my encouragement for you, and I'd ask you to pray for me the same thing, that we would be people who delight in the law of the, in the, law of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are, you are gracious to us. You are patient. You are constantly revealing yourself to us, and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. Would we be people who know the Bible? Would we be people who know the words contained in the scriptures? Would we know the Redeemer that the Bible displays for us? Would we be people who know Jesus better and are known by it and find our hope in in Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen.